Hey everybody, welcome to the New Market Alliance Church podcast, where you're invited to not just attend church or watch church, or in this case, listen to church, but actually go and be the church. For everything you need to know about our community, be sure to go to newmarketalliance.ca and maybe even drop us a line to let us know you're listening. We read everything you send and we'll be sure to get back to you. Our worship service happens every Sunday at 10 a.m. in person or streaming online. We want you to know you absolutely matter to God and you absolutely matter to us. Everyone is welcome and wanted. Now, let's join today's teaching. Write this letter to the angel of the church in Sardis. This is the important message to you from the one who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know everything that you do. I know that people praise you. You have a reputation for vigor and zest, but you're dead, stone dead. Wake up. Your lives as believers are nearly dead. Maybe there is life in you yet, but I wouldn't know it by looking at your busy work. Nothing of God's work has been completed. Your condition is desperate. Think of the gift you once had in your hands, the message you heard with your ears. Grasp it again and turn back to God. If you do not wake up, if you pull the covers back over your head and sleep on, oblivious to God, I'll return when you least expect it. Break into your life like a thief in the night. So if you will not know what time, I will come to judge you. You still have a few followers of Jesus in Sardis who haven't ruined themselves swallowing the muck of the world's ways. They are like people who have kept their clothes clean. They'll walk with me on parade, clothed in white. They have proved their worth. Conquerors will march in the victory parade. Their names will forever etched in the book of life. I will say clearly to my Father and his angels that those people belong to me. God's Spirit is speaking to you in the churches. You should understand what the Spirit is saying to you. You have ears, so listen carefully. What a lovely voice. You should start a podcast, because I, would, I'd, I just would listen to you as I, as I fell asleep. Um, that sounded weird. I take it back. Um... For those of you who share a bed with a spouse, um, do you think it's God's sense of humor that rarely do sleeping patterns align? You know, morning people are paired with night owls. Uh, People who are always cold are paired with people who are always warm. Uh, People who awaken for any little thing, (coughs) Vicky, are paired with people who can sleep through Armageddon. I, I'll see Vicky in the morning and be like, ooh, you didn't get much sleep, did you? No, I was up at 3 a.m. because the dog yawned and um, <laughs> he licked his lips. And I'm actually nervous Will Smith is gonna come up here and smack me, but I guess... <clears throat> I'm talking about my wife, so I'll have to go home and uh, smack myself, I guess. But, <laughs> but meanwhile, to me, she's like, um, you really didn't hear those smoke detectors go off last night? Um, smoke detectors? Yeah, I had to replace all four batteries. In it. Hmm. I, I remember dreaming about air raid sirens in World War II, but are you sure? that, the- Dude, wake up. 
wake up. And the church in Sardis, I can't help but think, to the church in Canada even, Jesus just might be saying, wake up. I, I think in two years of COVID, um, and it's made this sensation maybe more prevalent, this feeling like you're sort of sleepwalking through life. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but I, I've had that feeling, sleepwalking through church, going through the motion, sleepwalking through your faith. Maybe this, this letter turned into the, the jolt, the, the, the wake up that Sardis needed. Glenn and I were talking about this recently. Um, for us, preaching isn't really preaching unless it hurts just a little bit. Um, unless it kind of makes you do this, like it's not really doing its job. The message of Jesus and Peter and Paul and the prophets of the Old Testament these last letters of Revelation are, are really a message of repent, wake up, stop messing around. The time is short. Your life is being wasted. You're going the wrong way. And uh, I, I, I heard of a pastor who had a, a member quit uh, going to the church and said, it's basically because of your preaching. And so he called the person up and said, hey, I hear you've left the church because of my preaching. Can you tell me more about that? And uh, that was a little awkward, but basically what the person said is, uh, you know, I feel bad afterwards. It's like, oh, okay, okay. Well, and uh, maybe that's not my problem then. Uh, This is maybe what preaching ought to do in a lot of cases, because if the church is just the equivalent to a, a big group hug, I think we're missing out on something. It, it should be a place to be corrected, to be convicted of sin, to repent, confess, ultimately through the work of the Holy Spirit, to, to change, to be transformed, to look more like, like Jesus. And from what we read in this letter, the church in Sardis was far from a dying church, far from obsolete, far from irrelevant, at least how we measure that thing. You know, the building was not in disrepair. The congregation was not scattered. The pastor was not ready to resign, quite the contrary. It was probably a busy church with meetings every night and committees galore and uh, promotion and publicity and something going on all the time, events, groups, programs, outreach. It had a reputation for being alive, a going concern. Problem is, it didn't have that reputation with God. He says, y'all dead. And the organism had turned into just an organization. Uh, What was once alive was now dead. It was known as a lively church, and yet it actually needed to be revived. I suspect there are a lot of lively churches today that are asleep, if not dead, in God's sight. And you can't necessarily tell from the presentation, from the outside. I heard someone describe the modern evangelical church experience today as a Coldplay concert followed by a TED Talk. Two excellent things, two high quality things, vetted, 
interesting, slick, well-produced. But I thought as I heard that, Lord, help Knack if we ever just become a Coldplay concert and a TED Talk. Jesus did not come to earth, live a sinless life, face false accusations, make enemies, experience the worst pain known to man, die on a cross, defeat death, just so we could, what? Put on a good show? First of all, like, we can't compete with Disney and Netflix and Canada's Wonderland and Marvel. But thank goodness, we're not called to compete with them. Like, we can't even really compete with larger churches in town who have all the smoke and lights. And, but that's not our calling either. Our calling is to make disciples, to glorify Jesus in all we do, to be the church in a world that needs hope. And I, I bet the church in Sardis had a pretty good show. The hottest worship team, the hippest pastor in his skinny jeans and faux hawk and tattoo sleeve, you know? They had the conferences and the events and the programs. But something apparently was going on beneath all the activity. Um, it was like they prayed, but it didn't quite get through to God. They worshiped, but it was like it, it rose no higher than the roof. They sang full-throated singing, but it was just that. It was just singing. Not the aroma of sweet incense, of, of a heart of worship towards God. They gave, but it was in obligation. Gifts without a thought of the giver, and therefore empty. L listen to how the message translates the words of the prophet Isaiah. He says, we're all sin-infected, sin-contaminated. Our best efforts are grease-stained rags. We dry up like autumn leaves, sin-dried. We're blown off by the wind. No one prays to you or makes the effort to reach out to you. You've turned away from us, left us to stew in our sins. This is one of the times where I actually like the old-timey King James Version. It says it like this. And there is none that calleth upon thy name that stirreth up himself to take hold of thee. And Jesus even repeats that thinking here in this letter. He says in verse three, go back to what you first heard and believed. Hold to it firmly. Uh, we can stir ourselves up plenty in church these days. Man, we've, we've actually never had more hype. Um, some big churches can afford the show, you know, some of the little churches can work themselves up into sort of a sanctified seizure, but it doesn't seem like we're stirring ourselves up to take hold of God. Uh, going to church is a good thing if we're going to meet God. Worship is a good thing if it's done in spirit and in truth. Tithing is a good thing, but you know, giving a dime on every dollar and a, and a couple hours on Sunday is not the same as giving ourselves, giving our heart. Sardis was engaged in all of those things, but fulfilled none of them. Um, it was a form of godliness or religion without power. 
Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the kingdom of God isn't about talk. It's about power. So you know your religion, your, your church is just talk when it feels like a, a facade, a, a show window that doesn't have anything in stock. This strikes me um, that what is going on in Sardis is a very inoffensive Christianity. Uh, this seems to be one of the only churches in the seven letters that isn't under any persecution. Hmm. Maybe because they weren't pushing back against anything sinful. Maybe because they were a little too innocuous, too safe to even be worth persecuting. Ouch. Jesus says to hold on tightly. To what? To what you first learned and believed. The simple gospel. That that we are sinners in need of a savior. That we are saved by grace and grace alone so that no man should boast. That God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. Sometimes you have to go back to the basics to remember your mission, your calling, your first love. And uh, I think it may be the most dangerous aspect of pastoring or any church ministry leader, you know, that you do so much work supposedly for God that you neglect your relationship with God. You know, that the ministry becomes like an end in itself, totally disconnected from the purpose and the presence and the power of Jesus. How sad is that? And by the way, part of the reason why we call what we're doing a service uh, is, is not just our service unto God um, through worship and prayer and reflection. It's also God serving us in this gathering. Jesus said himself, you know, that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus didn't come to take from us. He actually, he wants to give to us. He's generous that way. In fact, what God wants from us most of all as we, as we come into a church service is for us to bring our emptiness, uh, to bring our brokenness, to bring our helplessness and to, to offer that to him so that we can be filled with his love, his fullness. It, it is God's joy and delight to serve us through the word and communion. Um, it's for our encouragement and for our joy. It's hard to receive that though when we're so busy making the service all about our work and our ministry all about the show. Lord says, wake up, strengthen what remains because it's about to die. Put breath into these bones, put meat on that skeleton. All that you're doing is good if you complete it, carry it out to its objective. Some, some churches would be tempted to read this and say, okay, well, let's get rid of the choir and the programs and the committees and the pancake breakfasts and no, all those things have their place, but they need to mean what God wants them to mean. 
I, I suspect if we visited Sardis, you know, they would have shown us how nicely they were set up. They could have boasted about their large membership and their finances were in good shape and there was a, just a mighty program of activity. And meanwhile, while their membership was growing, members were not growing. Uh, there was quantity without quality. Salt had lost its flavor. They had a reputation for being alive and awake, but they were asleep. How does this happen? Uh, I guess it happens, you know, the way I heard that bankruptcy happens. Slowly and then all at once. That's how it happens. It happens when Christians sort of take their foot off the gas, when they take their eyes off Jesus, um, when they kind of sleepwalk through their faith. Uh, have you heard, I know if Paul Timgren were here, he'd know this, but have you heard what is commonly referred to as the, the worst lead in hockey? Have you heard, heard this? Does anybody know what the worst lead in hockey is? Apparently it's 2 nothing. Um, the most dangerous lead. You know, yeah, one goal lead, you know it's shaky, right? One shot and it's anyone's game again. But apparently a team leading 2 nothing might just be complacent, kind of under a false sense of security in their lead. I highly doubt Sardis was always complacent. You know, churches don't start out being apathetic. They don't start out being dead, sleepwalking, ineffectual. But unless there is a vigilance, a, a desire to keep Christ at the center, to keep our hearts tender, to be humble, this is what drift looks like. Um, maybe you can be successful by all other worldly measurements, but actually dead in God's eyes. Now, I've just painted a, a pretty depressing picture of the church, and it doesn't take too much of a leap to um, connect the dots between Sardis and what we're seeing in churches all across North America. And what about Knack? If this is a downer or convicting or guilt-inducing, I, I want to tell you that there is hope. Uh, there is hope even in this rebuke from Jesus. There is hope that the church in North America, that the church in York region can wake up. And it turns out it can be uh, summed up in, in three R's, three R words. This is the most cliche preachery thing ever, okay? First of all, to make it three points, come on, that's like first day of Bible school. Uh, but then to make it an easy to remember alliteration, dude, now you're just being a caricature of a preacher. I swear, I'm not, you know, trying to be clever. This is how the letter made sense to me. And, and the first R really is the one that's consistent throughout these letters is repent. Repent. If, there, if there's a consistent message, it's, it's that, that, and it's, it's, it's something that can be applied to every generation, that has come since. It's this message of repentance. And folks, if this series has done nothing else for me, it's 
increasingly convince me that the path to spiritual maturity, to right relationship with God, begins with repentance. It, it is the key, you know, to search me, oh God, to see if there's any wicked way in me, to take that seriously. And not sort of that, <laughs> that blanket prayer of, Lord, for the sins I may or may not have committed, if any of them come to your mind, please forgive me. You know, like that non-apology that, uh, you know, politicians and famous people increasingly make. If what I said offended you, then I guess I'm sorry. In other words, you know, if what I innocently said was misconstrued by your oversensitivity, then I'm sorry that you're such a delicate snowflake who can't take a joke. Uh, try that on your spouse sometime and see how well that goes. It doesn't work. Yeah, I, uh, first 20 years, I learned that that does not work. Slow learner. Uh, it's not a real apology. It's not real repentance. And maybe we need to rediscover this ancient practice, uh, the prayer of examine. Uh, where we get in the daily routine of honestly reflecting on our day or the day before, asking God to reveal the times where we were impatient, unkind, angry, sins of commission, the things that we actually consciously did that hurt God or others, sins of omission, the things that we could have, should have, ought to have done, but, but we didn't do. There's, there is a brokenness in real repentance. There's a heavy heart knowing that you've hurt somebody or, or hurt God. Not so that we can live in a state of shame. Quite the opposite, actually. So that we can live free of shame. Uh, forgiven with no backlog of, of relational damage. This clean slate uh, can I tell you, though, this, um, after a long day, it is way easier to watch Netflix than to go through some uncomfortable process of examining your heart, of asking God to look in the nooks and crannies of your soul, uh, of your heart. The, the church at Sardis needed to repent, to confess it, to confess the deadness, to put away sin, to be filled with the spirit, to actually put life and meaning into all these things that they were doing. But if you do not repent, Jesus says, if you do not wake up, the Lord says he will come like a thief at a time uh, when you'll be caught off guard. Uh, how very different is this promise of a return than Jesus' other promises of his glorious return. There's a note of warning to the church because quite frankly, Sardis isn't ready for his coming. And maybe this is a good litmus test for any Christian or church or anyone for that matter. How does the prospect of Christ's return make you feel? Uh, do you dread it? Do you welcome it? I think most early Christians not only welcomed it, but they were 
ready for it. Not only were they ready for it, but they were expectant. How many expectant Christians do you know? We believe in his return doctrinally. But does it thrill us? When he says, behold, I come quickly, is it all you can do not to say, ah, even so, come Lord Jesus. Repent today. Now, Now is the accepted hour, Paul says, of Christ's favor. Today, now is the accepted time. The second R, um, a few years ago, I became very interested in the subject of revival. I read everything I could get my hands on from Charles Finney to Jonathan Edwards. And, and uh, while no two moves of God have been exactly the same, I, I think there are some commonalities. It, it, first of all, it began with repentance Humble men and women whose hearts were broken before God. They were grieving their own sin. Doesn't something in your heart long for revival? And I know that's sort of an old-timey religious word. But just according to the dictionary, all it means is a restoration to life, to consciousness, a restoration to vigor, to strength, restoration to use, an awakening. It's what I need in my life, and maybe you do too. It's what we need after COVID, after two years of languishing. If there's any good that would have come out of the time of COVID, may it be a realization that we need revival. May it start with me, Lord. It's a concept found throughout the Old Testament, throughout Scripture. Uh, You know, even like when the prophet Ezekiel had this vision of dry bones and God directed him to prophesy that the rebirth was coming to Israel. It it was a promise that seemed impossible in light of Israel's present condition. She was dead as a nation. Uh, No land, no king, no temple, no hope. But in this vision, he's taken to this valley full of, of dry bones and he's told to preach to these skeletons. And you know what happened? God breathed his breath into those bones. And the bones came together and flesh covered the skin and breath entered through those bodies and they stood up as a vast army. Oh man, that'll, that'll preach. And God is actually in the business of putting breath into things that we thought were dead. Putting his spirit into the spiritually dead. Amen. So, for those of you keeping notes, repentance precedes revival, which is almost always preceded by my third R, a remnant, a remnant. See, the other thing I noticed in my revival research is that I, I seem to notice revival began with this dedicated minority. You know, the hope of revival often lies with the few. The Lord gives hope and encouragement. He says, there is among this sleeping church a remnant. Here's what it says in verse four. You still have a few followers of Jesus and Sardis who haven't ruined themselves wallowing in the muck of the world's ways. They'll walk with me on parade. They've proved their worth. A few even in Sardis, like, like an ailing lung with only maybe a few cells doing all the breathing. 
The, the real life of the church and other churches is found in faithful people who keep it from becoming a corpse. Folks, amazing things are possible with a remnant. And in almost every church, there is a, a remnant, a band of Gideon warriors. You remember the story of, of Gideon? It started with 32,000 soldiers. It was reduced to 300 after the cowards and the careless were eliminated. Yeah, God is in the remnant business where two or three are gathered in my name, he is present. If two agree on earth as touching anything, they shall ask, it shall be done for them, their father in heaven. Um, One shall chase a thousand and two shall put not two, but 10,000 to flight. The the metaphor for these elect, for for these few is a great one that Jesus says. They are the few, the dedicated core who have not muddied their clothes, who are dressed in white. Those who haven't been stained or sullied by the compromise of of the world, of the culture. Um, And they too need to be aware of the, the equal and opposite danger of becoming a Pharisee, of a holier-than-thou, judgmental, self-righteous clique. Because our own righteousness is, is what? Like filthy rags. Our righteousness is Christ himself. And he gives us this pure, spotless, white robe. Um, just as I close, I, you know, I tell people that my, I don't know, personality type, Enneagram type, whatever it is, is, is one who thinks gray. Uh, I don't usually think in, in black and white. I see nuance of issues, and, and I try to see both sides. And this can be actually a helpful attribute when trying to problem solve or, or mediate or just, just have empathy for a differing view. Thinking gray is one thing, but gray is a lousy color for a robe. Um, there are some whose, whose robe is gray, and gray is the color of compromise. Um, it's, it's neither black or white. It's a very popular color nowadays, even in the realm of religion. Gray is a good color for a funeral. It's lousy garb for a Christ follower. Oh, that we would walk in white, neither spotted or gray. And perhaps you're like me, and when we start talking about a precious few or or elect or remnant, it feels kind of uncomfortable. It doesn't seem right. It feels exclusive or clicky. It doesn't seem to jive with the inclusiveness of the kingdom of heaven. I want you to know the gift of salvation is offered to everyone. No exceptions. The invitation to the kingdom of God is for every race, every age, every gender, every background. And yet many will choose to reject that gift. And even among believers, there are those who will set themselves apart as fully devoted followers of Christ, hungry to be part of what God is up to in the world, not content to 
treat their relationship with God like some sort of glorified fire insurance. Uh, Not content to rest on their laurels or content to rest on the stories of how God was at work in the past. If you're like me, I I long for revival. I, I know it begins with repentance though. And it invariably begins with a faithful few, a remnant. So for he who has an ear, let them hear. Will you be part of a faithful few, a a, a redeemer's remnant, a master's minority? The path that leads there is sometimes unpopular, and it's often hard. It's narrow, and the Bible says that unfortunately few will find it. Will you be one of the faithful few? Spirit of God, would you breathe on our dry bones? Would you put flesh on what is almost dead? May it come alive. We ask it in Jesus' name.